This talk was given at the North Carolina Zen Center. Our programming is made possible through the support of our members and friends. If you would like to make a donation to the center or become a member, please visit us at www.nczencenter.org. We have found that it can aid one's understanding of a Dharma talk or Taisho if you sit in meditation beforehand, and we encourage you in this practice. Thank you for listening. You know, as this kind of time of year um, rolls around for a lot of people, we've talked about this quite a bit. It can be difficult for a lot of people. And, you know, there can be a great amount of pressure to uh, feel like we have to kind of be all kinds of jolly and that sort of thing. You know, all kinds of uh, into the holiday spirit. Maybe you are. And, I, and, and if you are, that's great. I have, I have uh, moments of that. Um, as we approach the new year and all the expectations of the new year. So, so you know, it's a mixed bag. There, there are particular challenges, I think, that Zen practitioners have during this kind of time of year as many people touch back into family situations, seeing old family uh, and friends. And um, my teacher used to uh, really uh, revel as I've said before, he used to revel in this time of year for his students because we, as residents, we would often go, we, the center would close and um, the um, residents would sort of scatter to the four corners of the globe, it, literally. I mean, back then it was people from Sweden and Mexico and um, Poland and um, Hong Kong. There were, there were folks from all over. But we would all scatter, and some of us would go home to parents and to family. And so he used to um, really enjoy seeing how we fared during the holidays, uh, see how well our practice would hold up during the holidays um, as we got dragged into uh, old habits, you know, seeing family and friends again. It's so easy to get dragged into old ways of relating, you know, uh, especially as practitioners, we hope in many ways to leave our past behind. Anybody else feel that? The wish to leave old habits, old uh, ways of relating and this sort of thing behind. So it can be humbling to see actually how uh, pernicious, how, uh, how ingrained our habits are and how easily we can get drawn back into uh, unhealthy ways of relating. And suddenly our practice disappears and we're just like reverted back to some kind of old dynamic. You know, as somebody invites us to relate in those ways, not even just with past people from our past, but people in our current lives, of course. It's not just with other people, it's often patterns of drinking and drug use this kind of time of year. Um, consumerism, being pulled back into consumerism, that tug of war that a lot of us have with our relationship with things. Uh, I myself grew up in an environment where uh, 
Affection was shown through things, by giving things. And so this kind of time of year can kick that up for a lot of people. And so during this time of year, I think a lot of us can find ourselves on the extra defensive, like really on edge. And I remember how as a beginning Zen person, it seemed that what I wanted most was for people in my life to see the fruits of my Zen practice. And uh, so much that I would almost act extra spiritual. You know, sort of as a defense mechanism. You know, I want to keep all all that old shit out. <laughs> you know, and of course, for the most part, family and friends would have nothing to do with that. You know, that that seeing seeing us as extra spiritual. It it reminds me of something that we talked about somewhere someone recently, which is. Uh, this um, verse from the Gospel of Mark where, I don't know the, the verse itself, but it's something about when Jesus returned back to Nazareth, he couldn't do miracles. You know, he, I think it says something like he couldn't do miracles in his hometown. I imagine how, you could you can imagine when Jesus showed back up, it was like, oh yeah, there's Jesus. He's like the son of, you know, he's just the carpenter guy, right? And um, actually in our own tradition, uh, Matsu, uh, Zen master Matsu, who was a very early and important teacher. If you haven't read the uh, stories of Matsu, I want you to do that. Uh, his Chinese name was Baso, or excuse me, Japanese name was Baso. Chinese name Matsu. Ma means horse. Um, he was a Dharma heir of the uh, sixth patriarch, uh, so he was very early in the Chan lineage. Uh, very, and he his successors included uh, Pai Cheng and Nanshuang. Um, Pai Cheng uh, or Hyakujo, and um, uh, that's his Japanese name, and Nan, Nanshuang or uh, Nansen is his Japanese name. So you may be familiar with uh, a couple of those. But anyway, he returned to his hometown after he had been a teacher for a while, for a short stay. And as he came back home, a lot of them greeted greeted him with uh, a lot of fanfare because he hadn't been back in a long time. But then uh, it said that um, this old woman came out and said, what's all the commotion about? And then he saw Ma Su and said, oh, that's, that's all it is? All this commotion over the, uh, I thought it was like some dignitary visiting, but now I see it's just the son of the garbage collector, Ma. And um, so he, he responded with this kind of humorous verse. He said, I advise you not to return to your native place. Uh, because no one can be a sage in their own home. The old woman by the side of the old brook still calls me the garbage man's son. You can't be a sage in your own house, right? 
So uh, Master Ma was, was, you know, a real adept during those early years for me. When I returned home for the holidays, um, I was certainly no adept. And uh, underneath that spiritual facade was a, a real fragile practice. You know, I took it, in, in a lot of ways, I took it way too seriously. That wish to be, to differentiate, uh, to, to have some distance from those old habits, those old people. And I know for many of us, we're not seeing family and friends this year, or maybe not as many as we normally do, maybe on Zoom. But still, this kind of time of year, I think, is, very difficult because it uh, it elicits, I think, a lot of our wish for change in ourself to 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 see change. And while wish our wish can for change can be very serious business, while that's admire admirable, I think it's also um, can be a serious problem. You know. Uh, we we so badly want change, and when others in our life entice us into old ways of relating, it can feel kind of deflating to not see our change stick, the the change that we hope for stick. And so I don't know if people have experienced that, but I certainly have, and. But I found that actually it's, others aren't the biggest challenge. Uh, working with others isn't the biggest challenge. Our biggest challenge is our own mind, of course. This is classic Zen, right? When we look closely, it's often us who are our biggest critics. And our impatience with ourselves when we want change. Our impatience is, in many ways, the real enemy and um, as some of you know, in the Zen tradition, we will sometimes encourage people to practice with the paramitas, these six qualities of the bodhisattva. And patience is one of those, along with uh, generosity and living a moral, ethical life and living with energy and vigor, living with... Uh, sense of practice of meditation and insight and, um, and so in each of these qualities there is the reflection of all the other qualities in other words in order to really practice patience you need a kind of energy you need to uh, have a generosity of spirit um, but the the word patience I think is interesting because Patience, um, while it's a good quality, I think that if we dig a little deeper into patience, what we find from a Zen point of view is there's a shadow, kind of a shadow side to patience. Because patience often looks good from the outside. You know, we say, oh, wow, what a patient. Like if you look at a little kid, for example, and they go, oh, what a patient little girl. Oh, what a patient little boy, right? But underneath that, inside, that little kid is like, 
wiggling and squirming and can't wait to get the piece of, you know, the treat that he's been so patient to get. So there's actually a real impatience in, in a way behind that facade of patience. You understand what I'm saying, right? There's a kind of holding off the dam, right? And, um, when it comes to patience. There's a kind of waiting, I suppose, with a waiting for something to end, isn't there, with patience. We're waiting, we're kind of waiting for something we don't like to end, or we're waiting for something we do want to begin with patience. So I think a better word might be trust. Trust, you know, a trust that there's something bigger. A trust that we, when we don't see the change we want in our life or in the world, that we have a trust that we still are whole and complete just right now. We want to hold those two, we want to learn as Zen practitioners to really hold those two qual, two, two truths in uh, this dynamic tension. That we want change, and yet we are whole and complete. So it takes a tremendous amount of trust to to and patience, or uh, even even a kind of uh, courage to to know that that we may not be seeing the change we want in ourselves, and yet it's there. It's happening. It's happening. Um, Oscar, Oscar Wilde said that it takes great courage to see the world in all its tainted glory and still love it. See, those are the two, those are the two sides. To love something deeply, but also know that it needs to change. You know, to see the world in all its tainted glory and still love it. To still love ourselves despite our taintedness. That's so difficult. And so, yeah, I think for most of us, I, I again, this tiredness, I think our patience is being tested. Isn't it? Right now. As we're, we're all standing in line very patiently, waiting for the world to return to normal. We're all standing in line, patiently waiting for this vaccine so that we can come back together. But I think we can have trust that this will pass. That's the hope. And even this, um, everything that we're going through when it's not going our way, we can hold, learn to hold this in a larger awareness. This is, I think, the basis of practice, is to be able to hold all the things, the ups and downs that we go through, uh, the tiredness, the, 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 the struggles that we have inside, uh, to see them in this larger awareness of the Dharma. And and knowing impatience is just going to be there. 
we all get impatient, we all get tired, we all get angry. Um, but again, these things come and go. Uh, and practice is not about getting rid of those things. We want to really, again, I keep hammering on this, I know, week after week. We're not trying to get rid of impatience and anger and all these obstructive mind states. We're not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna do it. Uh, they will lessen, they will be, have less impact on us, but we're not gonna get rid of them. It's more about developing the inward capacity to weather all of those things as they do come and go. To not take them as seriously, to not take them as dramatically, to not get swept away by them so much. In other words, to hold, again, to hold those temporary mind states in this greater awareness. So this time of year when it's so challenging for all the different reasons that it is right now, can you see this greater presence? When we work and push too hard towards change, I think that's when we can uh, work against our own best interest. When we push too hard in any direction, whether that's in our koan practice or whether it's in just in becoming impatient with the world, with our spouses, with our family members, with um, ourselves. When we push too hard, we work against it. As yesterday I said in the introductory to Zen class, I mentioned the koan that I often do, um, where Joshu asks his teacher, Nansen, what is the way? Joshu is really a student at this point, later becomes a awesome teacher. I mean, like, one of the best. He says, what's the way? And Nansen answered, ordinary mind is the way. And Joshua asks, well, shall I try to seek after it? And Nansen says, if you try to seek after it, you go away from it. And then Joshua says, well, if I don't try for it, how will I know it's the way? You see the dilemma here. It's like back and forth, right? How will I know it's the way? And then Nansen says, uh, knowing is, the way is not a matter of knowing or not knowing. It's not a matter of knowing or not knowing. It's, he says, uh, knowing is illusion and not knowing can be delusion or blankness. If you attain to the way of no doubt, it is boundless as vast space. So how can there be right or wrong in the way? I think this case is important as this time of year because we're often, again, caught in how do we see the change that we want in the world, in ourselves. And so we can get caught in change or acceptance. Do I go to change? Do I work towards acceptance? All these dualities, knowing, not knowing, emptiness, form, you know, the dualities that we sort of wrestle with. 
So how do we get past not knowing and knowing? How do we get past change and acceptance? I think last Tuesday it was during our discussion, Joko, we were talking about Joko Beck's chapter um, on, what was it on? It was on decision-making. Um, she reminded us in that chapter uh, in the beginning how each of us has a limited amount of turns going around this planet or going around the sun. And she brings up this word turning. And she's, I think, was trying to get at how when we know how limited our time is on this planet, we, it, it, it helps us get down to work about this business of awakening. And in Buddhism, um, we talk about the turning of the Dharma, how important that is, the turning of the wheel of Dharma. It, it, for example, when the Buddha began teaching, it is said that he set the wheel of Dharma into motion. And in Zen, we talk about turning words, which are words or gestures that turn a student's mind towards enlightenment, away from where they're stuck, delusion, so to speak. And so, as a reminder... Enlightenment is really about seeing through dualities, including the change in acceptance. Do I accept something? Do I change something? These dualities that rest in the mind, when we have some kind of awakening, we see through all of that back and forth. And so my turning words for you are... If you want to see through this back and forth of change and acceptance, of patience and impatience, or knowing or not knowing, then return to Mu. Return to your breath. All problems that come from the human mind get resolved through the practice itself. All problems are resolved when the mind is at rest and when the mind is still. There are no problems when the mind is still. There's no need for change. There's no need for anything to be different when the mind is truly still. So tomorrow is the winter solstice. Uh, And in looking up the word, I love etymology, and so looking up the word solstice, it comes from two Latin words. First, sol, which means sun, and then sister, sister, meaning come to come to a stop or to a standstill. And the sun, of course, has 
getting lower and lower and it's at the lowest point in the sky, as you all know, creating the shortest day and the longest night of the year. And to the eye, it can look as though the just for a few days around this time of year, at the solstice, the position of the sunrise and the sunset can look like it doesn't change. In other words, that's where it stands still. And this is the great invitation of practice, to stand still. To neither go towards something nor away from something, as Nansen reminds Joshu. And in practice terms, this comes when we enter samadhi. And samadhi, for people that need a reminder, is this this, uh, term that means one-pointed concentration. But it's not a concentration where we're making an effort. We may make an effort to get into samadhi, but when we're in samadhi, there's no effort because there's nobody there. There's nobody home when we're in samadhi. It's a condition without straining, where nothing is distinguished, where worry and regret, past and future, all cease. Which is most likely to happen when we practice daily meditation. It's most likely to happen when we develop our zazen on a daily basis to return to the breath in the koan over and over again without pursuing thoughts or feelings. Now, there are times to pursue thoughts and there's time to pursue feelings. But you could say that samadhi is the solstice of the mind. Samadhi is the solstice of the mind where it stands completely still. Um, a Rinzai Zen um, practitioner who wrote a couple of books, uh, Katsuki Sekida, describes samadhi like this. He says, The time comes when no reflection appears at all. One comes to notice nothing, feel nothing, hear nothing, see nothing. But it's not a vacant emptiness. Rather, it's the purest condition of our existence. So, I'm saying all this because I really want to encourage you to practice Zazen to the point where you can learn to go into Samadhi. Because we all get tired and work hard. And then we all can become self-critical and overly self-reflective, caught in the drama of the relative, of the comings and goings in our life, of the people, of the things we have to do, of all the concerns that we have. So we need to experience the the, the um, stage or the stage or the canvas which all that drama plays out on. We want to see that. We want to see this greater stage that all this is dancing on. All the movement of the world is dancing on this sheer, empty, uh, dynamic, open, beautiful 
nothing. But then again, samadhi comes to an end. <laughs> right? It comes to an end like everything. And so we come back and we still have problems and we discover the world is still there and we can't hang out there forever and the sun and the movement of the planets begin again and our jobs and kids come calling. Packages need to be mailed. Has anybody been to the post office lately? <laughs> oh, jeez. The healing of the world needs to continue. But with that deep stillness of samadhi, when we enter back into the world of our daily lives, um, it all becomes doable because we have that touchstone of silence and stillness. If we are experiencing, if we're practicing but we're not experiencing samadhi, then practice won't help us too much get really regrounded. And even more than just doable, I think samadhi helps us see that, again, there is a, in, even in the tough times, we can enjoy it. We can enjoy it because, again, we see that it is this dance being played out on this larger stage. <laughs>